You're listening to Tara Lynn's A Geek Saga podcast. This episode features audio from a discussion panel that was recorded at DragonCon 2017. I will be today's moderator. Um, let me get a couple of house cleaning issues out of the way up front. Yes, please. Sell that. Yep. Yeah, DragonCon is running a, a charity. You probably heard this one to death. Uh, so on your way out, please leave your wallets here. And um, <laughs> DragonCon is doing a $100,000 match for um, Georgia Special Olympics and a $25,000 match towards uh, Hurricane Hunger Relief. Yep. So, oh, that's good. There you go. Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. Thank you. Take that down. Uh, and also, can you hand me that map right there? Yep. Um, Jen, I have to confess that I've forgotten the details on this map. Can you please explain what the deal is? Yeah. Um, this map, is this on? Yeah, this map is uh, donated to the track by an artist whose name is escaping me at the moment, um, who is in the vendor's hall. Um, His name is Kiefer Mendel. Yeah, there it is. Uh, and he is, um, he works in leather typically, but this is a print of one of his leather maps. Uh, and we are going to be raffling this off at the um, the Tolkien panel tomorrow because it's a Tolkien map. Um, it's really, really awesome. And so if you are interested in getting it, come check out the um, 80 Years of Tolkien panel that we're doing tomorrow morning. Okay. So um, first I'd like to have our uh, panelists introduce themselves, and then we're going to talk about ground rules for this discussion. So uh, first we'll start off with Andrew. <coughs> Hey everybody, I'm Andrew. Uh, some of you may have already heard me on other panels and other the high fantasy tracks. Um, I am just a uh, longtime fan of Game of Thrones. I think I watched the first episode, then said, oh gosh, i got to read everything out there about this. So I went back, read all the books, all the prequel stuff, spent hours on the wiki of Ice and Fire. Um, I attended Ice and Fire Con. I just absolutely love everything about Game of Thrones books and shows, so I'm excited to talk about it today with you. Um, hey y'all, uh, I'm Tara. Yeah, if, if you've been if you've been to any of the Game of Thrones panels this weekend, you'll know most of us here, I guess. Um, I'm Tara. I am an author, a blogger, a webcaster, and I uh, an event planner. I run um, a couple conventions, but most importantly for this particular uh, situation, I run Ice and Fire Con, which uh, was the first ever uh, Song of Fire Game of Thrones convention. Uh, in the Western Hemisphere, um, we just had our fifth year in April this year, and uh, so yeah, next April is going to be our sixth, which is, makes me feel so old <laughs> that I've been doing this for that long. When did that take place? Uh, it's the last weekend in April. Um, and where? It's in Columbus, Ohio. Yeah. Everything's on, if, if you go to iceandfirecon.com or just look at any social media, it's Ice and Firecon all spelled out, so yeah, we're easy to find. And I'm Jennifer Liang. Um, I'm the director of High Fantasy here at DragonCon. Um, previously to this, I ran the Wheel of Time track here at DragonCon, um, and then took a little break and then came back to do this. And um, I picked up the uh, the first Game of Thrones, the, the Game of Thrones novel, the first A Song of Ice and Fire novel, um, because it had a quote from a pull quote from Robert Jordan on the front of it, saying, uh, "This is exactly the kind of fantasy that I like to read." And I was like, "Well, okay, I need something to do while I wait for you to tr put the next book out." <laughs> so th this looks good, and it's probably just a trilogy, right? <laughs> but I'll get this one done while I'm waiting for the next Wheel of Time book to come out. And like, little did I know, here we are today. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, I'm going to talk a, a little bit about um, expectations for how this panel is going to go and expectations for the room. Um, I expect this to be a possibly potentially sensitive topic. Um, you can write entire blog posts, um, dedicate entire blogs, 
uh, crush your tumbler and destroy each other in the comments over the topics we'll be discussing today. I prefer that none of that happen in this room. Um, the rule I'm going to lay down as a moderator is we will absolutely be taking um, questions and comments from the audience after a little bit. Um, and um, we will only have one human speak at a time. Uh, our panelists will not speak over each other, and our uh, audience members will not speak over each other, no matter how batshit crazy the other person is. <laughs> so, that's my one of three, right? Yes, <laughs> yes, you're good. So, um, with that said, um, please do not uh, do not shout out or cry out an alarm and, and dismay at anybody else's observation until you are handed the microphone by one of our two um, stalwart uh, volunteers in the back. Thank you. Everybody, everybody cool with that? Great. If not, please leave. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, the first thing I want to talk about, the topic right now, the, the subject line of this panel is toxic masculinity in Game of Thrones. And for this, we're going to be discussing both the books and the show. There is a difference between the two, and that's going to be something we're going to talk about. But first, before we get into toxic masculinity, I want us to talk about masculinity without that adjective and so the question the first question to establish is what is I guess what we'll call good or benign masculinity that is not toxic what do we mean by that Andrew starts off <laughs> and when Billy told me this of course my uh, like training from law school came back and my like, question the question you know what, what is masculinity in the first place and, and why should we even give a particular definition to it I think one of the issues in Westeros is you know there's this really strong set definition of masculinity, and I think one of the clearest examples is with Samwell Tarly. Uh, we all know Samwell prefers books over swords, he prefers you know, fa soft fabric over armor, he likes learning, um, and he's considered not manly. He's called Lord Ham, he's called Leviathan, he's called a whale, he's made fun of, he's mocked by almost all the other guys in the series that he comes into contact with, except for John and a few others. Um, but yet he's very intelligent, he kills a walker, he's Sam the Slayer, and he has all these positive attributes which you know, could be considered very manly, but they're not by that society. So I, I think, you know, when I think of good, I think of opening up the definition to include more things, where you know, the definition would include someone like Sam and not just somebody like um, the mountain or somebody who has pure physical prowess. <laughs> um, I guess, uh, yeah, w w the way the Game of Thrones, like when, or the Song of Fire, when you're in that series, um, like you said, their their de definition of masculinity is it's very, I mean, it's medieval. It's it is super medieval. It's like if you are good with a sword and. Um, I, I mean, shoot, even look at like Renly and, and Loras. They're both very talented, um, you know fighters and everything but they're still kind of like you know whisper from the side mocked because they like nice clothes um so it's, it's a very very you know old specific definition of masculinity in this world and i really think the easiest way to describe it is just saying it's it's you know go back look at medieval you know medieval era um possibly even like before and that's that's what george you know wrote for like in, into his story yeah, so I think um, some more positive depictions of masculinity, uh, like more benign characteristics, like you think of Ned Stark is um, a father, he's a provider, um, he, like he's definitely like a manly man, but everyone thinks very highly of him, everyone kind of emulates him, at least in the North, um, and th those traits that are his strengths are m traditionally masculine strengths. Um, he is the caretaker of his family, but he's not like 
a hands-on dad. He's more of like a, hey, I'm going to stand and watch you from this balcony while you play around the yard kind of guy. I like enjoy like my kids playing kind of thing. Um, he spends time mostly with his sons teaching them masculine arts, but he's cool with his daughters pursuing their own interests. Um, so I, that's sort of what I think of when I think of like a positive depiction of masculinity in the series. So I, <coughs> sorry. <coughs> when I think of elements of masculinity, some of the things that I think of are things like um, strength and and capability and knowledge and uh, for the, the archetypal for us, obviously not for people West Rose, but sort of the archetypal masculine figure for 20th, 21st century America is like James Bond, right? Like mm -hmm. James Bond is a guy who when he shoots, he doesn't miss. And he has, he has prowess with his weapon. Uh, he has shocking endurance. Um, he he also knows trivia. He he always, he always knows which how how the champagne supposed to be served. He's worldly. He knows the rules of the society. And like sophisticated. Other. He's very sophisticated man of good taste. All these things. But um, Tara made a comment a second ago about about Renly and uh, Renly and Loris are mocked because they like nice clothes. But of course James Bond walks around in a well tailored tuxedo. Right? <laughs> right. This is a difference between the definition of masculinity as we perceive it versus masculinity as they perceive it in Westeros. And I think this point that you just made about Ned Stark is exactly correct. I think Ned Stark is sort of what Martin holds forth as what Westeros deems as as sort of the, the paragon of benign masculinity. Is there anybody else that sort of fits that mold who's not a, a, not the jackass dad, but is instead <laughs> the, the cool dad? Right? I mean, Robert certainly does not fit that mold. No, no, not Robert. <laughs> Yeah, Davos is one. Um, and that applies for book and show. That's a good example. And I think Stannis has some elements of that. Like he, he's a he's a, a caring and capable dad. Um, he cares until. for until <laughs> until. Apart from that, Mrs. Lincoln, how was the play? We're talking. Can we can we clarify? We're talking book Stannis here. Yeah. Like book, let's just book focus Stannis, on book Stannis. Book Stannis is definitely like a better person than show Stannis. <laughs> just overall, um, but you know, um, Stannis book Stannis is very like he's um, a capable ruler. Um, he's very determined. Um, he realizes pretty quickly, like, oh, the real threat is in the north. I, who, who cares who has the throne if the world ends? I'm going to go take care of this bigger threat. Um, so very canny. Um, the Iron Bank backs, backs him over Cersei because they know he will, he'll actually pay them back at some point. Um, like, just he's better traits in general in that direction. Andrew, do you have comment? Uh, I would also say um, another one would be Book Doran. Um, he is, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. he clearly cares about his uh, children, doesn't want them to go off and die or start a war or do anything <laughs> rash. So he's clearly thinking about these things and, you know, trying to keep up, keep them all in line. Um, um, guys, can you speak towards the audience into the mics? Because when you think oh, yeah, sorry. Over, no, you can actually hear very well. Yeah, sorry. So I said Book Doran. That's the, the leader of Doran. Um, I think Alexander Siddiq played him on the, uh, yeah. the show. Um, and, and once again, in that, he actually manages to keep them out of trouble instead of getting stabbed in the back by his own family, um, which is, you know, shows that he cares. And he, not only that, but he understands his children. He understands their motivations. When Ariane, um, his daughter, wants to go off on this, you know, crazy revenge quest, he says, no, 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 think about it. Here's some books, do some reading, take some time, and figure out a longer game that's not going to get us all killed. And I, I do want to second Davos, honestly, because there's literally nothing that Davos ever does wrong, in my opinion. Um, he, he's he's not like my really top three favorite characters because those have been set in stone for a long time. But yeah, Davos is like, 
He's just so good, y'all. Mm-hmm. Davos can sometimes, he might, he might be incorrect, but he's never wrong. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I, I really love that. So we've talked about, we sort of laid down the baseline masculinity, so now we're going to get into the real meat of it, which is <laughs> when we go toxic, toxic masculinity, what do we mean by that phrase here? I think I would just start with just generally. I think of oppressive masculinity when I think of something that's toxic. I I even think that can apply not just in the Randall Tarley situation, you know, where you're actually shipping your son off because he doesn't meet your expectations, but also with you know Tywin, where he is so oppressive with all of his children in terms of his expectations, in terms of what he wants from them. Uh, It's really overbearing, and uh, it ends up kind of perverting all of them, or really changing and scarring all of them because he is just so oppressive. Um, like for my part, I think that the it's so it's very easy to get into the toxic masculinity and how it affects the male characters and the way they act. But what makes it like truly toxic, I think, is how it spills over into the female characters. Like literally everything Cersei is is because of the toxic masculinity in this world. She crazy, and it's <laughs> like it's because of the way she was raised by her father, who is you know one of the best examples of super toxic masculinity in this series. So when I scheduled this panel, I was thinking of Tywin. <laughs> uh, yeah, because I think he's just such a great example, um, precisely for what the other panelists have said. Um, the, the Just the way that he's like, okay, it's my way or the highway, we're going to be like this. Um, the way he treats Tyrion, because Tyrion is not the son he wished he had. Um, and it's not just because Tyrion's birth killed his wife, it's because, oh, this is what I get out of this, like, you took my wife and you're going to suck as my son? Okay, this is how we're going to play these things. Yeah. Um, like, he will not name Tyrion as his heir because he can't conceive of, this is going to be what follows me, like, this is not going to be my heir, like, this is not how the Lannisters are going to end up with Tyrion. Like, I, I have to pretend that he's my son, even though I don't really believe he is, because I don't want him to be my son. Um, but I'm not going to let him have the um, full benefits of being the son of a Lannister. So before I said, you know, when I was given what I think of elements of masculinity, of, you know, strength, knowledge, capability, that sort of thing. I think when it, when it goes toxic is when, like Tara was saying before, is when strength becomes mistaken for the exercise of power. Right when you when Tywin Tywin is doing all of these things um, because he can or because he's trying to increase the power of his house and by his house he really means his own vanity and his legacy and these sorts of things and I think you were the well Jen said before about Ned Stark being sort of the paragon of, of you know this is the good way to go um, everybody else up here has said Tywin and I'm going to give a different quote. My mother wishes me to let Lord Eddard join the Night's Watch. Stripped of all titles and powers, he would serve the realm in permanent exile, and my Lady Sansa has begged mercy for her father. But they have the soft hearts of women. So long as I am your king, treason shall never go unpunished. Sir Ilan, bring me his head. Joffrey. That is Joffrey. And yeah. that is Joffrey passing the sentence and refusing to swing the sword himself. And that, I think that this, is, this really encapsulates the difference. For me, when I, when when Jen first said, "Oh, I want to do a, a panel on toxic masculinity," and, and she had Tywin in her head, I immediately went to Joffrey because of the way Joffrey is depicted. This is show Joffrey. Show show Joffrey a little different from from book Joffrey. But I think, and you guys who definitely know this stuff better than I do, my recollection is, at least in the books, it stated that the reason why the attempt is made on Bran Stark's life is because. Um, 
is because Joffrey is later deduced. Joffrey is trying to, to terminate Bran in, a, in an attempt to show his dad how good of a man he is. Is that true? Is yes. That yeah. Yeah. About that? Essentially, yeah. Uh, how can you get more toxic than that? I, I'm going to impress you, Daddy, by murdering people. That's right. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to have a cripple killed so that you will love me even more, Dad. That's well, and a lot of what Joffrey does uh, is because he's trying to. He, he never really connects with Robert as his father. Um, wh whether, uh, well, I know what I just said. <laughs> okay, but he he believes Robert to be his father, but he never really connects with him. And whether it's because at some level they know that they're not really related to each other, or because Cersei's interfering with the relationship, or they're just not the kind of people that connect with each other, we don't really know from the text. But well, maybe you know better than I do. There, there's. A just real quick, there's a there's a hint, uh, or actually, it's outright said that Robert gets bored with babe, like children. He mm -hmm. likes them when they're babies. He likes to. I think the exact quote is "dandle them on his knee." Um, I hate that phrase, but like <laughs> he, he likes them when they're babies. He likes to play with them and cozy up to them when they're babies. And then the second they get to the point where they can like talk and stuff and are walking around, probably he wants nothing to do with them. So. Mm -hmm. But Joffrey is also, I mean, all these characters, uh, Joffrey, I think, is a great example because he is an amalgam, like a Frankenstein's monster uh, that was created by these other characters. Mm -hmm. He was influenced heavily by Tywin, by Cersei, mm -hmm. by the Lannister uh, entourage, which all carries the same toxicity based on their general environment. Well, and Robert, too. A and Robert, yeah. too. But there's always an element of, I'm trying to impress my daddy when Joffrey's doing anything. Like, he's, like, he's trying to be a king, like he pictures his father to be he doesn't really know Robert so he doesn't know that Robert was bad at his job <laughs> but he's the picture in his head of what a king should be like what a powerful man should be like his pictures are Tywin his pictures are Robert and so he's trying to be that an amalgamation of that and he's also kind of cray cray on the side so uh, it's really really bad <laughs> I'm, I'm intrigued by our we as the audience and here I'm speaking as a TV viewer I read the, mm -hmm. I read the first three books long ago um, when I think the third one had just come out and I haven't read any books since because I've been waiting for them all to finish. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> yeah, this is an, interesting, this is an interesting, interesting life decision I've made. Um, but the first scene where we're introduced to Ned Stark is the scene where he passes the sentence and swings the sword himself. The first scene where we're introduced to Tywin is at the end of that season, I believe. Um, it's, at the, it's at the end of that season after we've already seen Ned, we know who Ned is, and I think Technically, the first the first scene is after Ned has already passed. Um, is, that, is that not true? Um, no, I, I I think it was it, both in the books and the show. It was it was Clash of Kings that we meet Tywin, yeah, and then yeah, and then so season two of the show, and it was it's like. It's, it, it's a couple episodes in because it, it's it's during the um, it's when Tyrion comes down from the mountain from the Eyrie and right. uh, they're about to go into battle on the they're already at war with there's them. some battle they're, they're going into there's too wars. many battles I can't remember this one specifically yeah, the first scene the, the first scene where we see where we see Tywin Lannister in the flesh he's skinning a he's skinning a deer I think is what he's doing yeah, yeah. And, and that's and that's followed up shortly by the scene where he rides his horse into the, the throne room and, you know, and in battle poops. armor, covered in blood, and then it defecates on the floor. Yeah, what a know. champion. Right? But that's, that's, you know, masculine. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, no, it's not but, that but, but, these are, but these are the first character beats we get for him directly on camera. And this, this is where we, when, when we hear of him by reputation long beforehand, but when we see himself in, with his own actions, his own actions are presented as 
not masculine, they're hyper masculine. These are, I mean, I'm gonna skin a deer in front of you while, while we're having this conversation about about overthrowing this uh, renegade. That, that, is, that is super, uh, that's boss. That's, uh, <laughs> that's Bond villain level stuff. Yeah, there's an, a, an element of performativeness to it. Like yes. he's like, I, I need to make an impression. So I'm gonna skin this deer and I'm gonna ride my horse and oops, it pooped, but I still look badass. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. So, so you met, we mentioned before um, about the fact that Joffrey, Joffrey, in a way, is sort of a, a victim who perpetuates things um, willingly as he goes. What other characters have we seen? And here we can listen an entirely long list of, of people, people who are impacted by the not the masculinity of others, but by the toxicity of them. And no points for saying Sansa. Keep going. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. I mean, he's got a lot to prove. I mean, because he's, he, he's got such an identity crisis. He's in a perpetual identity crisis, which is probably why he's, you know, he has this anxiety in himself. He probably has, like, a very anxious attachment issues, you know, so therefore he engages in whoring. He, you know, is trying to be manly. He's trying to be the best. I think he was the one, correct me if I'm wrong, in the, maybe in the books he proposed to kill the direwolves at first, right, when he found them? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, he's trying to show off, oh, I can kill it. You know, it's a direwolf, but I'll kill it right here. Um, and he goes off on this stupid quest to take Winterfell. Zero strategic value, but just to prove that he really doesn't care about them. I mean, that's somebody who's heavily impacted. And I would say to prove that he is worthy of a society which is itself corrupted by the toxic definition of what it means to be a masculine yeah like they one of the first things that happens to him when he comes back to the iron islands um they they ask him like how did you pay for all that stuff that, that nice clothes you're wearing did you pay the, the gold pr price or the iron price well the iron price is the badass i murdered someone and took this price like why wouldn't you want to pay that price like you don't want to like be like a hooker and like get something given to you uh and so that, that's one of the reasons he goes off on let's like oh, let's go and kill people who took care of me because i need to prove that that I'm not corrupted by their ways. I'm still one of you guys, one of the cool kids. I mean, I, I really think like the, the best way to answer that question is who is, like, it's to just answer it with a question, who isn't <laughs> mm -hmm. impacted? Um, I mean, and honestly, I, like little side note, it's not just the characters. Uh, it's the readers and, and the viewers of the show who are impacted by it as well. Yeah, um, the, yeah the, the way D&D write the show, their own toxic masculinity affects uh, the way these characters were so well written and they, they not good. <laughs> so I want to pause on that particular distinction because I think that's going to be a big one that we'll get to here in a second. Um, I think also the question here of um, the honor culture of the North. Um, I know that it's, it's really important to them that oaths have to be upheld and, and no matter what, if you go back on, there's a, there's a big conflict that occurs in the in across several of the seasons and throughout the book so okay which is more important is it the fact that they broke is the fact that an oath was broken is it the fact that, uh, that that they rose up in rebellion what is it that requires somebody to be um for, for rob to decapitate a guy right um and there's a big debate about the morality of this and i think that there are other cultures in we, we talked about the we talked about the um we talked about the iron islands right what about um, what about, for example, the Dothraki? Right. What do we, where do where do we run into where do we run into this phenomenon creating problems in other cultures, even outside of Westeros, maybe in Essos itself? So I don't think we get a whole lot of examples of of men in the Dothraki to be able to say this. Like we get Khal Drogo, and I think he's the 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 Dothraki man, man that we spend the most time with in the books. 
and he is just awesome at being Dothraki. Like, he is a cow of cows. He has the most horses. His hair has never been cut. He get you know, he's so powerful that he's able to get himself a Targaryen to be his bride. He's going to invade Westeros. He's going to sire the, the horse that mounts the world or whatever it's the prophecy is. Like, he is the baddest of baddest asses. And, like, the Dothraki love him. So I don't think we get an example, a counterexample of that. I don't think there's someone, we see someone who suffers because of this this masculine um, identity that the Dothraki have. I'm sure there's a Dothraki somewhere who can't live up to this Cal Drogo standard and really, like, his life sucks for it. Um, you kind of see with um, Viserys not understanding Dothraki culture and understanding that they think he's less of a man because he refuses to ride a horse. Like, he thinks he's like, like yeah, like, kings don't ride everywhere like smelly Dothraki. Like, I'm going to ride in, a, like, a nice cart or a carriage. And, like, he thinks he's being given a favor. Uh, and, like, the, the respect that he's due as, like, future king. And they're all like, oh, this loser. Um, <laughs> and so, it, like, I think that's the only time you really see, like, the Dothraki's definition of masculinity impacting a character in a negative way other than some of the early stuff that happens to Daenerys um, because I think though we just spend so much time with Cal Drogo and he's just so good at being Dothraki um, <clears throat> I mean honestly the Dothraki society is, is very it's a matriarchal society at the end you know because they're, yeah. they're run by you know the, the Dosh Kaleen yeah. but um, you know really like Honestly, Cal Drogo himself is a perfect example of it because he is so great. But then the moment he gets injured and he can't ride a horse, it's like we should just kill him. You know what I mean? That that's what they do. You know, they're at the first sign of weakness, they they cut off that limb. In this case, like Cal Drogo was that limb, and it, Danny just happened to kind of uh, speed up the process for them, I guess. Good job, Danny. Yeah, and we do have other good uh, countercultural examples. And we have the Roinar, we have uh, the Dornish, you know, the Summer Islanders that have other cultures that are much more open, much more understanding. Granted, the show doesn't go into those, um, you know, which is, you know, once again, an issue we're going to talk about. But um, there are counterexamples out there in the, uh, in the books as well as in the prequel and, and supplemental material um, of societies that are much more um, equal than the ones, some of the ones we see in Dothraki in the, in the North. So I, I think we've we've put it all far enough. I think I want to unleash Terry here. Uh, <laughs> Terry's bouncing in her chair. Um, yeah, everybody. I think there is a difference between George R. R. Martin's approach to to Westeros and those of what we those who are lovingly called D and D, the, the two writers. Um, what are their full names? David and Dan. David and Dan. Um, Benioff and Weiss. Mm -hmm. Benioff and Weiss. Weiss and Benioff, got to get it in the right order, right? Um, their, their approach, particularly after um, after they started to deviate from the source material, has been um, has been heavily criticized in some corners, and I think one of those corners is about to manifest on the table. So, um, <laughs> 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 No, I mean, I... Listen, I'm going to try to be as nice about this as possible. Um, so there's there's an example both a, both a woman and a, you know female character and a male character um, who I think are perfect examples of D and D or D and D -er. <laughs> not knowing uh, what they're doing in a lot of cases. Um, the male example being Loris. Um, you know, in the 
in the books, he he has an, a, like a showy element to him, but it's Renly who's the one that want that wears like fancier clothes and everything. And in the show, they like put they put all of that onto Loras, you know, because he's he's like the titular gay character. Like he's got to be super super gay. Um, he can't he's like, like he's yeah he he like he's <laughs> he's a good fighter still in the show, sure, but like he also gets that showy aspect that was actually. Renly's in the books, and then on top of that, he he loses, you know, this the, the man, the love of his life. And in the books, you know, his he joins the Kingsguard because once the sun has set, no candle can replace it. Um, whereas in the show, like an episode later, he is just fucking everybody. You know what I mean? And he like he he basically is kind of his his own ruin and the ruin of his sister in a lot of ways. Um, you know, because of that, and like. Again, the, the the toxic masculinity in this in this respect is that they apparently Benioff and Weiss couldn't imagine a world in which a gay man would uh, be so in love with somebody that uh, he would, you know, essentially become like a monk uh, when that lover died. Um, Tim, let me ask you: How much do you think that was done because they felt it was necessary for plot purposes with the Faith Militant? Or how much of it was just because of their characterization? I mean, I don't see. I honestly, I don't see any reason why Loris had to be imprisoned. I, 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 I like they could have told that story without him. They like being part of it. I mean, it's told in the books without him being part of it. Um, it's all orchestrated by Cersei. You know, just being an idiot. Um, they chose to turn it into a situation where Loris became part of it because he was gay, and they wanted to show the faith as being. You know, super like, uh, super religious. I don't really know how to word this without like probably offending somebody. But um, you know, it, it, and and that's so that's like Loris. And then the other one that I wanted to mention is Brienne. Um, in the books, Brienne is so amazing, but she's she's never killed a person before. She doesn't kill her first person until halfway or more through Feast for Crows, right? Versus in the show, she's like swinging her sword and murdering people like two episodes after we meet her or something. I, it's probably more than two episodes. But they, they couldn't uh, differentiate between a woman who can be a woman but super badass and a woman who is just a man in a woman's body is is the way they portray her it's it's like it's lazy writing and also it takes away from the idea that there can be layers that a woman can be doesn't have to just be badass or super feminine that there is a middle ground there um so yeah those are my two examples yeah i would say um for that part i mean bringing up uh, renly and loris just reminded me of a general you know, grievance with the TV show and when they're dealing with most of the queer characters, not just Renly and Loris, but also um, any of the, the folks in Dorne that are, you know, once again, Dorne in the TV show is dealt, you know, with in a completely uh, negligent manner. Um, you know, I mean, Oberyn was, was probably the one that was portrayed generally well, um, you know, in terms of his open-mindedness, he really didn't care. Um, but in terms of the rest of the characters, they're almost seen as a trope. I mean, I remember that that trip to Dorne. I was thinking Xena, warrior princess, almost with the you know when they were doing that rescue mission. Um, but then what's happened to all the characters? They're either dead, they're all kidnapped. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen to Yara. She probably is going to die. Um, and and it just is a systematic uh, you know elimination. Now some of those went 
also died in the books as well, but they've been treated systematically the wrong in a way in which does not portray them in a favorable light, I think, in the TV show. Okay. Um, we've now reached the halfway point of today's panel, so I will now uh, release the camera in the audience. And if we have questions or comments, um, now's your chance to please do so politely. Start with Jeff, where you going? Just curious how you guys would categorize this. To me, I think Grey Worm and Lesser, but Varus, is probably the, the uh, for lack of a better term, the healthiest kind of display of masculinity in the sense that they're not in-driven, um, but they're driven out of that still that quote-unquote typical masculine trope compared to, like, we've seen other characters go off, like, Ned Stark, I think, kind of got toxic, like, his, his whole oath, and, and we're seeing it in John. So I'm just curious to hear your feedback on that. So I'd, I'd like to, it, I'll, t I'll make one point there, and then I'll open it up to the rest. I don't know that necessarily Ned's error was Ned's error came out of toxicity in his masculinity. He does still have that that tragic flaw, right? There's the there's the sort of Greek element of every every character has to have that one thing that brings them down, and I think that's sort of what we see manifested there in Ned is the fact that he's just so honorable he can't wrap his way out of a, he can't get his way out of this spot, right? But yeah, go, you're going to clarify what you're going to say. But he, he flipped. So it, like one of the last scenes with him, he flipped because he thought he'd get that leniency and he still got beheaded. Yeah, so. so to me, that's where the toxicity kind of I see. came in. So you, the, the desperation that he was in. Exactly. Panel, you want to address that? Yeah, yeah, I don't, I, I don't want to, I kind of agree with that, uh, with Billy, that I don't want to conflate honor with, with uh, toxicity necessarily because I think those things aren't necessarily uh, mutually compatible always. But, um, I definitely do think that that um, that the unsullied have some sort of a mixed bag. They are portrayed in a way as masculine as great fighters, but yet they're looked down upon by others. They're kind of mocked um, more so in, in in I think more so probably in the show than the books, um, just based on the offhand comments that other people will make, you know. But they're still. I mean, at the end of the day, they're still the only ones that stop the Dothraki. The only people who have ever stopped the Dothraki are these unsullied units. So they've got something to say there. I mean, it, it, you know, in the show, it's definitely like a situation where um, they're tr they're making a joke out of the fact that these dudes are eunuchs, uh, you know, and, and and this isn't something we in this day and age are experiencing, you know. Um, so I don't think it's I don't think it should be something to joke about, but uh, I suppose that that would be part of their humor um, because obviously like if you're a man but you don't have the parts um, in their minds that makes you I mean it's I can't believe I'm going to say this, Andrew. Uh, in Viking culture, uh, they actually castrated people um, for you know certain reasons, and th it was like the worst punishment you could receive because by being castrated, that literally meant you were you were not a man. In which case, you were nobody anymore because you also weren't a woman. So, um, so yeah, it's it's the the way uh, you know Varys and and and. I mean, Varys is so different from like Grey Worm and, and the Unsullied, but um, the way they act, you know, I, I, I don't really know as if I think that they are all that uh, affected by the toxic masculinity, but maybe that's the way, maybe Martin wrote, wrote it like that on purpose. So I don't think Varys 
has any issues of being uh, being a man or not a man or whatever he considers uh, being a unit to be. But I think the people around him have issues with it. Everybody's like, ooh, like that's the creepy unit guy. Um, so I think that even if Varys himself doesn't have any kind of psychological hangups about being a eunuch, I think the world around him is like, ugh, creepy dude. <laughs> Uh, and, it, and a large part of why they think he's a creepy dude is because he is a eunuch, uh, because he has this kind of otherness to his sexuality because of that point. Um, and so, um, again, Varys is fine, but everybody else treats him very differently, and I think he kind of plays on that um, expectation that people have of him. I, I think there's an element of that to the, the, the eunuchness of Varys and the Unsullied that are two different sides of the same coin. Mm -hmm. The Unsullied are that way as an element of control, mm -hmm. right? They're, they're not only is not only is there. I mean, it's like gelding a horse, right? Right. Yeah. Their their free will. The intent of doing this is to undermine their free will in some way. Whereas for Varys, it's the opposite. One of the reasons why Varys isn't trusted is because nobody understands his motivations because he doesn't think in the same way that they do. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, he isn't distracted by the same distractions that they are, and so therefore he's unpredictable and alien, and uh, and can't be trusted. And I think that that's a very, um, that's that's not only a medieval view, I think that's a modern view of, of people like yes. this. I think, I think that's true. Uh, do we have another question? I think um, even more than Loris, someone that got the shaft male-wise in the show, versus, maybe not more than Loris, but in a different way, uh, Jamie. Bite. Uh, you haven't read the books beyond Oh, no, I'm familiar. Oh, okay. I, the, the Wiki of Ice and Fire yeah. is, is very helpful. It's a very helpful <laughs> so, you know, it saves me a lot of time. Jamie in the book five is like, oh. he's one of my favorite characters. He's, he is, when he gives her shit, the, basically the fuck off and burns it, her letter, and he's constantly thinking about Brian. He's gotten out of his I just need sex mentality. Now he's actually thinking about love. And in the show, well, we know finally at the end. Sorry, spoilers. At the end of the episode, he finally GTFOs <laughs> for a totally unrelated reason. Yeah, right. The, the, his motivation for doing so is totally different. I'd love to hear comments. I, I totally agree. Book Jamie is always I, one of my favorite characters. But whenever I say that to somebody who's just watched the shows, they're like, "Jamie's your favorite character, really?" Because you see so much inflection, so much change in him, and you realize he's coming from a scarred past. Once again, Tywin is your daddy. So, you know, that's what you've been dealing with your whole life. You've seen how he's treated Tyrion, how he's kind of pushed him out for deviating. So you're trying to stick to this path. You're trying to please him. I mean, when he became a Kingsguard, he said it was the proudest moment of his life until he found out that Tywin is extremely disappointed because he can no longer be his heir, and that only left Tyrion. So, you know, he's, he's deeply impacted by that. He does change. And the way that he was portrayed in the, in the TV show extremely angered me because that's kind of the opposite almost of the way it went in the books. I mean, I'll be real. I kind of, ex Jamie in the show doesn't really exist for me. <laughs> like, show Jamie, show Jamie, uh, what are they, there's, a, there's a website that like renamed all the characters. I'm pretty sure they call him Larry Lannister. <laughs> um, they, they have a name for Cersei too, but, but yeah, no, he, <laughs> I can't remember what hers is, but um, yeah, so, so Larry Lannister in the show, uh, he, um, I, and I don't really know what they were, what, you know, what their point was with him, uh, because he is one of the most, you know, sort of, he, he has a really great arc in the books. And even when he's frustrating, uh, you can still see him slowly, you know, growing and changing, um, whether or not you like the decisions that he's making. Uh, in the show, he is raping his sister and um, 
you know, then and then staying with her until literally the last episode. Um, and he, he has he has no agency. I like I really don't even understand what his point is in the show anymore. Like I'm 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 shocked he lived through this season. Like I still don't know how they dragged him out of that lake. I, I was in legitimate suspense as well as <laughs> about that last scene. Yeah, I was because too. Oh wow, they're, they're almost at a point where his character has nowhere else to go. Oh, yeah, I guess he does. He's gonna go out the door. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, he can't because he's got to kill Cersei. Yeah. <laughs> That's ja- book Jamie, and like I'm gonna ignore show Jamie because show Jamie is so inconsistently Larry. characterized. Yeah, Larry. 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 Larry is so inconsistently characterized. You can't even say he has an arc at this point. Um, but. Book Jamie is a great example of someone who's defined himself by these masculine traits, and then when he loses his hand and is maimed, and he can't do the things that he's like the way he defines himself anymore, like he's really lost. Like he goes through this depressed period, like he's all nasty looking, uh, like he uh, you know lets his stump get all infected. He thinks he's going to die, uh, and then he kind of pulls himself out of that with Brienne's help. And realizes, oh wait, I still have things I can do. I can still, I can define myself in different ways and still do some of the things I'm good at. Like, you know, I, I love the the part in the book where he's going through the Kingsguard book and he's looking at his page and it just sort of stops towards the begin the top of the page. Like it just lists out like some like really early accomplishments in his career as a Kingsguard and like the rest of the page is still blank and he's looking at that going like, okay. I still get to write the rest of this page. I can figure myself out. And so that's when he starts really like pulling himself together as a person again uh, and really thinking about like what could I do besides just be the guy that fucks my sister and kills people. Um, hey, I said only once, so I don't have to put anything in the swear jar yet. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think because of that, Jamie's a really good example of someone like working his way through those toxic masculinity tropes. The most yes. Yeah, and I, yeah. well, and I think that's one of the reasons why book Jamie has such a like a passionate following. Um, like when you first read that book series, you're like Jamie Lannister, that guy's evil. And then like as soon as you start getting in his head, you're like, ah, oh, this guy. There's a lot going on with him. Like there's a reason like he did all these things, and like he actually saved everybody, but nobody knows because he has shit for honor. And yeah, two yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> so, in, in contrast. In contrast, particularly with the show, Ramsey Bolton, who on, on page one, oh is and yeah. by the time it's over with, is like a caricature of a caricature of evil. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, Joffrey is Joffrey is somebody who I wrote down here and said, like, "Oh, this guy's toxic masculinity." I, I can't even conceive of. Ramsey Bolton on any sort of spectrum. Of I don't think there is one. Yeah. <laughs> Ramsey's not a real person. Ramsey yeah. Bolton is not. I mean, this. You want to talk about? Okay, we can We're trace the line from Tyrion through Robert to 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 Joffrey. Ruse Bolton is not that. Bad. All right. I'm just gonna. This is my thought on Ramsey. Um, <laughs> what I think We don't even need to talk about Ramsey because he's not really a man. Like, if your father was a vampire and your mother was a human, um, you'd be crazy too. No, really, he's he's beyond like. Um, is it psych? I don't even know. I don't psychopath. think psycho psychopath is a term that is utilized really in in like you know medical no, just, he's he's completely he's above and beyond anything like job there are reasons joffrey is the way he is i suppose there are certain things about ramsey you know his life that led him to be this person but i really think the biggest part of it is that there is there are there there are synapses that aren't firing well i think you know, when you're when your house sigil is you know a flayed man and you are himself a bastard you know product of rape of, of tywin you know raping the miller's wife 
um, and Bruce. Sorry, Bruce. <laughs> See, I know what you go. meant. Yeah, thinking of both of those individuals, but you know, he's always trying to prove himself as badder and badder, just in the same way Joffrey mm -hmm. was. You know, and that's why he's escalating. You know, over time into these these, these series of behaviors. <laughs> You want to talk about like whether he's a sociopath? I checked with DSM and he's cartoonish. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's what I. Yeah. yeah. He's, he's afflicted with cartoonism. Um, I think we have a question. Yeah. We got, we got four questions lined up. Yeah. Okay. Go for it. We'll go over questions. Then. All right. So, uh, not to keep drawing it all back to Tywin, but but why not? But why not? <laughs> he no, deserves but, it. I, I, um, one of the things that fascinates me, and, and I hear arguments all the time for and against Cersei as a character. But one of the things that fascinates me is just her drive to be, uh, really to be her father, and uh, how she wants to be uh, this king, if, if nothing else. She wants to be a man. She wants to have that power and control, and she's, she feels like she's stuck outside of the power cycle. But she accomplishes quite a bit as, as this person affected by this specific brand of toxic masculinity. So I just wanted to kind of hear your take on... on how that particular brand of craziness got well, I, escalated to the point that it did. Cersei's one of my favorite characters, not yeah, to empathize yeah. with, but to watch, right? yeah. obviously. And I think that she's she's interesting in that her motivations are so explicitly maternal, right? But her methods are, as you say, not not characterizing those ways. So uh, I'm, I'm interested in the panel's views on Cersei as well. Um, Jen, so yeah, Cersei, um, Cersei is someone who is like looking, she's on the outside looking into masculinity and so she's interpreting it as freedom uh, because she's looking at her own gender constraints. She's like, I have to marry who I'm told. I have to, I have to behave myself as a woman. There's things I'm allowed to do, things I'm not allowed to do. Um, and I don't like this. And I see the men not having to deal with these constraints. So she's looking from the outside in thinking, hey, masculinity looks awesome. Like I want to be part of that. And, but she's only seeing like the, high, the, the highlights of it She's not seeing the downsides that the other that the men actually have to deal with. Like they have to deal with, you know, all these expectations and things that are put on them. So, I think Cersei's idea of what a man should be like is almost like cartoonish in a lot of respects because um, she's only she's cherry picking what she wants out of it. Um, I, I think yeah. it's like a funhouse mirror. Yeah, like there, it's it's very distorted. Like it, when I get to do what I want to do, I'm being like a man. But when people tell me no, you can't do that, it's because I'm I'm a woman and not because I'm an idiot. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's it's a, it's very much like the grass is always greener yeah. on the other side. Um, you know, I, I, but what you said is literally exactly how I feel about Cersei. Her, what the reasons why she's doing what she's doing are her, her maternal instincts, but the way she goes about it is based on the way she was raised. And and I mean, t yes, Tywin being a big part of that. But um, I mean, honestly, how much did she really see her dad? It, she she only knows the legends, not the man, yeah. really. And and but she's still been at court and has you know, see, and she sees what these men have and get to do, and she doesn't have that. And so the goals of the woman who has to obey the rules of the men, and that's where she falls. Like that's where she has trouble navigating that terrain. No, I was going to say, she just wholeheartedly believes that had she been a man, that she could have accomplished this, and she could have been the you know, firstborn son, and accomplished all the greatness that House Lannister desired. She, she wholeheartedly in herself believes that. Regardless of whether or not she's right, she's not right. Yeah. <laughs> and like she, she's bad at a lot of things, but she believes the reason why people are telling her she's bad at it is because she's a woman and not right. and not because she's an idiot. Uh, <laughs> 
Like, yeah, she really, that's one of the reasons she surrounds herself with, with sycophants all the time is because these people tell her how special and pretty she is and they're like, oh, sure, I'll kill that guy for you. Uh, and the people who say, actually, that's kind of a terrible idea, like, she gets rid of all those people because, oh, they don't respect me because I'm a woman. Like, she's, like, when people say, oh, she just plays the woman card all the time, like, Cersei is sort of like the cartoon example of how you would do that. Next question. Sorry. Um, bringing it back to the Unsullied, I kind of felt like it was a little unfair to even compare them with any gender, because that's their whole point, is they're not filling any gender role. Like, Ned Stark definitely was filling the father role and the leader of all of the North, whereas the Unsullied are mindless drones. That's their job. They do what they are told. They do not have any agency, even when they work in a squad. They are told to clear, you clear this way, you know, in a house or something. Um, you don't have any, you kill the children, you don't have any, uh, you know, moral idea, you do. That's so, I, I think that there's, that, a, there's a lot of truth in that. Um, sorry, go, go ahead. And then I wanted to move on to, in a similar vein, The Mountain, because I've only seen, I've never read the books, but I've only, I've only seen all the episodes of the show, and even before he was a zombie, um, <laughs> he still was very benign. The only thing we've really seen from him is him doing what he did to his brother. And, um, but besides that, he never speaks for the most part from what I've seen. So I'll, I'll, make, I'll make a point and then I'll hand one off to these two, which is, um, I think the Unsullied are like the clones. They're the clone army. Yeah. Um, they're, okay. But they are, they are filling the role of men. And, and by that, it, they are held to the standards of the performance of males who, would be, who they replace. They are Unsullied. The reason why Unsullied are awesome is because they keep the eyes of all the other men. Therefore, they're better than well, women don't even show up in this argument, right? So that's, <laughs> that's just how it is. As for, um, what, what was the other one? Oh, the mountain. Uh, the mountain has uh, gets a lot of off-screen activity in the show that is uh, that goes on at length in the book. And here I'm going to hand it to Andrew. Yeah, so the mountain, I mean, just as a background, some folks who don't see it, and one good resource, because they do go into this in the shows, but you have to buy the DVDs and go to watch the history and lore stuff, which gives you a lot of good background if you're, you you know, really don't want to pick up a book. It's too boring. And the art, the art is really awesome. The charcoal art they do for the history and lore it really is beautiful, and, and it actually I think has gotten better season by season. But um, they go into the fact that the mountain actually, um, you know, when they were storming King's Landing during uh, Robert's Rebellion, he was sent on a personal mission to you know take the baby. That, thus, Oberyn being mad because that was his sister, you know, taking the baby, smashing the baby, then raping her and then killing her. You know, so I. I I wouldn't call them benign. Sorry, you know, sorry. And, and, and no, no, but that's that's and that's that's extra information. It's something that I think they maybe don't spend enough time on in the shows. Is how bad of a guy he is, and that he uh, goes around essentially uh, in the books. His task is you know go around uh, pillage and and loot and rape and terrorize this area, which is why the the Brotherhood is was trying to hunt him down. They were initially sent to stop him because he's a monster. Maybe a better word, or phrasing, would be he's benign when he's shown on screen because but he wasn't even shown in the show for pushing his brothers, or maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think he was even shown directly on screen showing, um, putting the hound's head into the coals or anything. And that was when he was a child. They were children. And it was over a doll. Exactly. It was because his brother was playing with a doll, and it's like, we well, shouldn't be playing with a doll. Get some fire. You know, so, I mean, once again, that's... That, that, that's why I would say that, but, but there's no fault on you for not seeing that in the show. I, I think of it as, you know that scene in Star Wars where Grandma's talking, they're all, in the, they're all in the boardroom of the Death Star, and Vader's like, running his, uh, you know, uh, Tarkin says, Vader, chill, you need to be at peace, and Vader just sort of stands there. If that was the only scene you ever got Darth Vader, you'd be like, why does anybody care about this guy? <laughs> right? We know more. 
Yeah, um, well, and the thing about Gregor is uh, I, it, it's really even hard to say how much of the way he is, as bad as he is, as bad as we know him from in the books, is has anything to do with, like, masculinity because he, like... He, he has uh, migraines, like really bad headaches, and that's, I think that the, the way that's worked into the text is that it's part of the reason why he's so awful, because he's just like in constant pain, and he's just a miserable person. But he was awful when he was so young. I mean, like, you know, obviously the Sander thing, he burned his brother's face for playing with one of his toys that he didn't even want, and uh, he, I'm pretty sure, killed one or both of his parents. He's, he's, had, he's had several wives, uh, maybe two or three, but he's he's killed at least one or two of them um, in the books. So he he's Super yeah he, and and so he's been he's just been kind of off the off the wall like really since he was super super young. Um, so there's like things wrong with him that uh, you know we might never get the de or there were things wrong with him we might never get you know any more details about. But um, yeah, he was. He's he's a rough uh, he's a rough soul that dude. <laughs> Let's see if we can squeeze in two more questions. Who's, who's next? We've got seven minutes to do this. We're gonna be able to do it. Um, okay, so my question's a little off topic of these um, what we've been talking about just now, um, but I was wondering what you guys thought about uh, I guess Yara Greyjoy since she's a woman who wants the salt throne and she was raised in this extremely toxic kind of masculinity household but all of her brothers were dead or gone like Theon, so she was raised kind of like a man by her father in place of the sons, and um, she acts a lot kind of like a man in some ways, but she's also definitely distinctly a woman in others. And I also, as part of that, I really liked Asha Greyjoy in the books, and I really like connected with that character and I did not feel that way about Yara in the show. And I can't really put my finger on why, and maybe you guys have some insight into what those differences are and why I Yara is not as good. I think Yara is sort of set up to be, I don't know if this is intentional or not, but I, it jumps off to me. She's sort of this foil to Cersei in that she's, Yara is confident, um, but she's she's held, she truly is held back because she's a woman, right? And. Um, I think the the environment she's grown up in it is a difference between the between what's her dad's name Balin 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 yeah Balin and Tywin are both not exactly cool dudes but um, he Balin has gotten there right, with with how Yara needs to be he, she, he's, she's she's the number one choice that he's got at hand. So I'll just talk a little bit about the TV show distinction. And I think at least I was glad they changed the name, so at least I could mentally kind of separate the two. <laughs> yeah. like, they they are not the same. Yeah, so, but um, Asha in the in the books, you know, to me, she does more of her own thing. She's out there uh, raiding, you know, claiming uh, certain areas on her own. She has her own ship. She has respect for her own men. Um, whereas in the show, although she does have some of these things. She's used, mo in, in my opinion, a little bit too much as an accessory to Theon's plot, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So she is secondary and subservient like to Theon's plot. I mean, I was even mad in the last episode of how much time they gave to Theon fighting random Greyjoy Captain Number Five. <laughs> you know, what is this? I mean, it's an important episode. We're giving twenty minutes to this guy. So, um, you know, th that's I think the issue with the show, and that's why I felt like it's it's treated in a different way. You know, she comes and tries to save her brother because she loves her brother, which is something that typically is weakness. You know, I mean, her men say, oh, it's not a good idea, just leave him, leave him. And yet she goes there because, you know, th they're portraying this as a negative thing. So 
Um, but th that's that's a big difference between the two characters. Just like a tiny quick follow up. Um, the way she is with women, I don't think that she is shown as being queer in the book. No, she, no. she but she she's oh, she's uh, that's open. a difference as well that I just. I yeah, I, I, I yeah I believe in the books that she she may be queer, but um, in the show I'm get, I, it appears that they're portraying her as just being she is an outright lesbian, which would be great except for the fact that I really think that they aren't doing it in the show for any positive reason. They are just oh Ooh, well, lesbians. yeah yeah <laughs> having representation it it counts a whole of a lot more D and D if it's good representation, um, which they just don't know how to do. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is kind of how they write her. This is two dudes writing a girl. This is like the girl they wanted, the drunk girl they want to see in the bar. You know, like, I'm over it. <laughs> yeah, like, I think... <laughs> I, I think the biggest difference between Yara and Asha is that um, Asha's a complete character. Um, like, she has her own motivation. She has her own agencies. Um, she has things that she does for herself. Uh, and Yara, like Tara said, she's an accessory to somebody else's plot. And um, her, some of her biggest characteristics are either there to titillate the audience, or for the shock value, or because um, the plot requires her to do something. Mm -hmm. And it, it, so it doesn't make her a complete character. She's not doing anything. She's just kind of there, like fucking women and like, woo, look at me, kind of stuff. Right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. <laughs> All right. One last question, I think. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so I've been rewatching season five. Uh, it's probably not an unpopular opinion, but I think it sucks. Uh, <laughs> there's an excessive amount of that toxic masculinity of D and D that mm -hmm. I was talking about uh, a lot. An ex crazy number of attempted rapes, yeah. and yeah. you know, just aside from yeah, unfortunately. Uh, what happened to Varys and Selmy notwithstanding, I think they make a lot more mistakes. And then they try to correct in season six. Uh, I just want you guys' opinion on the correction towards female characters in season six. Sansa, Arya, Yara, Cersei's resolutions. I'll, I'll make a statement here that I think, um, I've said from the beginning of Game of Thrones, um, because I held this view 17 years ago, that Martin's arc was going to show the women overcoming the bullshit they have to deal with from the men. Um, I think D and D have taken that too too far. I think they I think they tried to throw a little too many bean balls at the batters um, that, that that are uh, that are people that we care about on the show and that people. Um, I think they I think they they've gone they dipped a little bit too far into it. That's my view. But I don't think I there's been an accusation that oh they got so much help for it last year that now they made up for it this year. Yeah, right. They don't care. <laughs> that's true. I, I agree with Tara. I don't think they care about that criticism. I think they are executing the game plan that they've always had, which is the girls are gonna come up and, and you know, be awesome. They just took a heck of a way to get there. Well, I do think, however, that, uh, and, and Tara, here, I'm very interested in your view on this. What they did to Santa's character to deviate from uh, the book, putting her in Winterfell, Tara, go for it. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I mean, just, just to, like, to touch on that, like, they... Mar yes, there is rape that happens in these books, but Martin does not make us read it, okay? Just like he didn't make us read Theon's torture, but D&D yeah. &D don't know subtlety, so they throw it in our face, and they use, they use these things as plot devices um, constantly. 
I mean, they, they have really stepped back from that. Um, but really, I think that's because that's their, that, that's always been their, their idea, their narrative choice, whatever, to, to have, you know, this point where, okay, well, I guess we're not, we don't, we don't need to keep having people being raped. Guess what, guys? You didn't have to have it in the first place. Um, like Sansa being in Winterfell, uh, I, I just, honestly, I don't even have thoughts on it other than, like, I was so I was so grossed out I almost stopped watching the show. Um I still have never watched that episode a second time and I think it's one of the only sh- episodes of the show I haven't seen that that I've only seen once. Um but yeah, they you know, I I get why they did it and honestly, um we I was on a panel at Ice and Firecon, I think it was maybe the first year of the convention and we were joking about Roz and I said something, you know, about how maybe she was going to be Jane, but like Jane is Sansa instead of Jane is Arya um, being sent up to Mary Ramsey. And then uh, as a side note, I was like, God, I guess they could always like send Sansa back to Winterfell as herself, you know, as Jane. And I was not serious about it. Um, and so when it happened, I was like, oh God, like th- they took this drunk, like Tara on a panel <laughs> moment and like somehow found it. I don't know. Um, but no, yeah, it, I get why they did it, but I don't think they needed to go to the level, if they really, 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 really had to bring her up to Winterfell, I don't, like, they could have handled it in a thousand different ways, just like they could have handled a lot of other things a thousand different ways that didn't involve uh, having us watch these characters being raped and tortured for, you know, just constantly throughout every season. No, I, I would say I, com- I, I completely agree. You know, spectacle for the point of spectacle is 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 not really worth it, and and everything Parasite is completely <laughs> accurate. There. Okay, um, so that concludes our discussion here. Please rate the panel if you if you loved it. Please say that. If you have critiques, please give that too. We'll have you back next time, and please drop coins in the jar. Thank you. Thank you.